Welcome to Run This World. My name is Nicole DeBoom. I'm a former pro athlete turned entrepreneur. Each week, I'll bring you insights and inspiration from some of the world's greatest visionaries who will help you run your world in ways that you didn't even realize were possible. All in the framework of the amount of time it takes for the average person to run a 5K. That's 36 minutes and 38 seconds, give or take a mile. We often go long, so get ready. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now let's get this workout started. Hey everyone, it's Nicole here. We are going to get down and dirty on episode 15 of Run This World. I'm making progress. Um, This episode is really cool because I got to interview a true legend, Frank Shorter. Uh, Many of you in the world of running already know who Frank is. Uh, primarily for his Olympic gold medal in the 1972 Olympics, but there is so much more to Frank. And this was a really fun episode because we actually sat around in Aaron Carson's office in Rally Sport, you know, my favorite gym in town in Boulder, where I happened to reconnect with Frank um, almost daily on the spin bikes or elsewhere. He still hits the gym a lot, and you'll hear about that later. But it's really funny. I met Frank probably 15 years ago when I was still a professional athlete, had not started skirt sports yet. And the Boulder Boulder, a race that he actually founded, uh, was looking for a couple speakers to just promote the event at a local club. So they grabbed Frank and then they recruited me to come out and talk to runners about generally running and uh, inspiration. And what struck me even back then was how flippin' smart Frank is. So while he's done all these amazing things, he is truly a man of science and physiology and uh, psychology. The guy is brilliant. So in, in a sense, it could be intimidating to uh, sit and chat with him, but he's also very personal and his personal story is uh, pretty epic and, uh, you know, scary and intense. And I encourage any of you listening afterwards to get out there and buy his new book. Uh, It's called Frank Shorter, My Marathon. So he talks all about the crazy stuff he's been through in life. But today you are going to hear about the fact that his generation was the first guinea pigs towards exercise physiology and that they basically invented interval training. I'm not kidding. He trained a lot with some of the other legends, including Pre. In fact, I think he was the last person to speak with Pre before he died. Um, His experience at the 1972 Olympics, which happened to be Munich, which happened to be a terrorist attack, it was very, very intense. Um, he talks a bit about how other countries systematically dope their athletes because he experienced that firsthand in the 1976 Olympics. And then you'll hear some cool stuff about his background too um, and how he got into running and why. So he's got, he's got just, I could have sat there and spoken with him for another two hours and we'll have to connect again because we didn't even touch on the fact that Frank also started and owned a clothing company back in the day. He's an attorney. He started the Boulder Boulder and a race for kids. So there's a lot of other cool stuff to hear about with Frank. So anyway, with that in mind, just sit back or Get out there and start your long, slow stretch out, which again, you're going to hear about from Frank, and uh, enjoy this episode. 
All right. I am so happy, everybody, to have Frank Shorter on my big show today. Thanks, Frank, for joining me. Oh, this is great because, you know, it things happen for a reason. And, you know, we have the same background, university going to Yale and athletes at the, the uh, intercollegiate level and then getting into our own particular sports and staying in our sports. That's true. And then the other parallel, which is very, which is really more unique to us, is getting into the apparel business in our own. Yes, bis- that's in our true. Own sports. So you know, I can't think of anyone. That that that's a lot of connections. That, those are a lot of connections. And then we happen to come to the same um, gym here in Boulder, Rally Sport, best I, gym ever. Right, and you you choose your places for a reason. Mm-hmm. You know, people come here truly to work out. It's got a great atmosphere. Um, you know, there's never a weight on equipment. It just, and, and it's not a big box. It doesn't feel like a big box um, gym. And so we end up here and, and sort of connect up. And especially, as you've pointed out, several times on the spin bikes. Yes, because that's something that old people gravitate to, right? <laughs> older, <laughs> older. But at first, I got out on the roads. Uh, when I turned 40, I decided to start riding out on the roads. And so I was riding a lot because I was having some trouble with my back. And I got into the point where I was riding about half the time and running half the time. But that meant twice a day. I'd ride and then right, run on course. the same day because I still work out twice a day and I'm 68 years old. Right, so that's how, <laughs> how I transitioned from, from running twice a day to working out twice a day. So wait, when you were just a runner, is that all you did was run twice a day? Or did you have all kinds of other things going on? No, no. We, we at that time uh, didn't have um, uh, any kind of supplemental training. And mm. that, that has some application in a lot of areas because uh, of, of uh, concern and sort of, um, I, I don't know, uh, subject matter and, and, you know, what really is essential to training and improvement and, and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I do think a lot of it does fit into the kind of uh, placebo effect and psychological effect of your own particular training program and how you can set that up so that you have confidence in it. And it just, there, there wasn't that much to draw from 50 years ago. All people did was run. Mm-hmm. And, and so anecdotal evidence of what works develops over time. Or to put it very simply, we were in the first years of exercise physiology in the late 60s and early 70s. Mm-hmm. And they really didn't know what uh, the cause and effect was outside of running easy, running on the track, running this, running that. But they didn't, yes. they didn't know what you did in addition to it to enhance the training effect. You were a guinea pig. You were like the first generation of real guinea pigs. Right. And, and in fact, the first generation of exercise physiologists, and I worked with Ken Cooper down in Dallas, and he was really the first to really kind of quantify um, the exercise in Jack Daniels, mm-hmm. uh, another progenitor. Not the alcoholic No, Jack no, no, Daniels. no, not the Jack Daniels. <laughs> this was the Jack Daniels exercise physiologist who, who started out a new pulse State Teachers oh. College in upstate New York and ended up at the University of Texas, I think, and was the first to study athletes at altitude in 1968. Wow. Yeah, and he he was one of the first. Ken Cooper was one of the others. Bill Bowerman, anecdotally, was one. My coach at Yale, Bob Giegengack. There were, we were a certain group of coaches from the 60s who started uh, to really scientifically approach 
training. And, and so we were early on in that, and we really didn't do anything other than run. And so I guess if mm. I look back and say, how was I fortunate? I was fortunate in that I didn't get hurt until I was 10 years into my running, which is a long time to be able to go as a runner because of the orthopedic pounding, whereas most runners don't have that many years and they need that they at that time would have also needed the kind of medical backup you can have now, right, the orthopedic backup. Mm-hmm. And so, but what they did early on, they would look to see what we did, for example, as training and then study it and then uh, to find out why it worked. <laughs> and and that's how the cause, they, they were they were counting on our anecdotal experience. And there was a parallel evolution going on in terms of both in swimming and in running interval training. Mm, you know, just mm-hmm. how do you optimize your interval training? And my coach at Yale, Bob Giegengack, was great. And Bill Bowerman, for example, in Oregon, uh, who then taught Bill Dellinger, who was the bronze medalist in the 64 Olympic 5,000 meters, who was Steve Prefontaine's coach. It turned out that when Steve Prefontaine and I first met in 1969 in one of our first international teams together, same team, we went out for a workout within days of going to Europe, and we basically had the same workout from our coaches. Okay. It was parallel evolution. Yeah. I was my own coach, oh. and he had his from Dellinger. Mm-hmm. But the point being, at that time, the, the successful athletes in one way or another had come into training, and there wasn't all this sort of outside how-to support. You know, you just needed a good coach. That's true. So you self-coached? Yes. By the time... I graduated from uh, college from mm-hmm. Yale. I was uh, coaching myself because Geeg, Robert Giegengack, his theory, I remember the first time, and I don't um, know, you know, when I was there, Delaney Kippeth was the coach uh, yes. of swimming. Mm-hmm. And they both had very similar attitudes towards interval training. But when we got our freshman class at Yale, we were out for our first cross-country workouts. He said, look, you're all here to learn. And you're not going to go on to a life in running after. And win the Olympics. Yeah, no, 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 no. It's not that. But the point being, okay. there was no, you, you, you were here for an education. Right, right, to have right, a career yeah. and have a future. But this is a place where you learn. So I'm going to teach you how to coach yourselves, essentially. Amazing. I'm going to teach you the program. So the, the anecdote, the, the situation that, that describes that is, I win the Olympic marathon. I go through what drug control there was at the time. I gather up my metal and, and my bag, and and I like to say it, you know, get together with my entourage at zero, <laughs> me, and, and I go out of the Olympic Stadium, and it wow. starts to rain. I see a bus. It's the last bus back to the Olympic Village. It was, I could have walked, but it rain was really rainy. You were tired. Yeah. Let, no. <laughs> last bus. I'm last person on last bus, no room behind me. Standing in front of me on that bus is Bob Giegengack, my coach from Oh, my gosh. Because he had been the 64 Olympic track coach, and he was in Munich uh, as, you know, someone on on, uh, the U.S. Olympic Committee. And we started to talk, and you can appreciate this as an athlete talking to your coach. We started to talk the same way we did when I was in college, you know, Mm -hmm. how'd the workout go, and you discuss it. And, and I like to view it sort of teaching through the Socratic method. It's very much like, it was very much like law school for me with wow. Gegengack. Yeah. There would be this dialogue back and forth. 
And I said, you know, I took your program and I hadn't, and I'd been three years out of school by then. And I said, and this is what I added to it, you know, long runs and other, other kind of things. And I actually came across what they now call tempo runs, but no one had labels for them back then, that, that sort of stuff. And, and he sort of stopped me and he said, you know, you've been coaching yourself since the middle of your junior year. So I had been making up my own mm-hmm. workouts and schedules because that's just my nature. But to get back to that first workout with Steve Prefontaine, if, if people want to get technical, it was a step-down workout because he was going to race that weekend and, and I wasn't. And we did a, well, on a meter track, we did 1,600 meters, 1,200 meters, two times 800 meters and two times 400 meters. And we did this step-down workout with very short recovery and it was the exact same workout. In other words, we we just had happened on the same right. kind of workout. And that that's meant to be. It, it shows. Yeah. Sports it were shows, evolving. Yeah, it mm-hmm. was evolving. And there were these little pockets around the country and around the world where this knowledge was mm-hmm. sort of being gathered. So this is really interesting because, you know, many of the listeners are beginner runners, people who are looking for some entertainment inspiration. They don't maybe aren't totally entrenched in sport. And the premise of my podcast is that it's based around the length of time it takes the average person to run a 5K, which is 36 minutes and 38 seconds, which is an 11.48 minute mile pace. So I just kind of have to touch on what a stud you are and and were and, and still are, but in your running career. And how far could you run in 11 minutes and 48 seconds? Oh, I have no idea. Almost three miles, yeah. I think. Yeah, no, no. Well, <laughs> my my personal record for three miles is 12 minutes and 52 seconds. It's insane. Yeah. But to get back to the 5,000 meter. Oh, guess, yeah. Okay, here's parallel evolution, listeners. I trained as a 5,000 meter runner. That's why I could run mm-hmm. with Steve Prefontaine. My 5,000-meter workout theory was based on just what you said. What I wanted to run in a 5K race, broken down into segments to repeat at a pace, mm-hmm. doesn't have to be a lot faster, but faster than the 5K and working on the recovery in between. Mm-hmm. And that's the theory. And the other thing is I never ran more than three miles worth of those repeats. That was the basic formula. I ran at 5K race pace or faster in my hard training, and I never did a whole bunch of it. But I think it's interesting that you come up with the same 5K. it's so true. And, you know, I think to the point, a lot of people listening are training for things. And they're like, well, I want to run faster than my 1148 pace. So they have to train faster than that. But the hard part for people is to recover slower. Right. Like really slow down. Like how how slow do you go on your Okay, here's... On, on the recovery, I always did it by feel. Mm, I like that. And I realized, again, just instinctively, that 120 beats a minute is probably the pulse that you want to have when you're ready to go again. Right. So you, you've done some sort of hard training. And I hope everyone who's listening also realizes you only do this kind of training about twice a week. All your other running is at what I call conversational pace. Mm-hmm. We can talk the same way. We can talk on a spin bike. We can talk when we're mm-hmm. out running. Yep. And if you have to pause, you're going too fast. And the way I say it's not hard easy. You know, when you say you go hard one day, easy the next, hard one day. It's hard means very hard. Easy means very easy. Mm-hmm. 
So when we had this training group in Florida that we put together, or I was running with Prefontaine in Oregon with the Oregon guys, we would go out in groups and we would talk. And the thing we did, we could always talk and not have to pause for a breath. And the other unwritten rule in our group, especially in Florida, was we're going at the pace of the person who on this day wants to go the slowest. So we would, we would, we would, and, and it wasn't spoken. You would just go out and we'd see how everyone was going and, and this, the pace would just sort of evolve. And the other thing we did, we ran a distance, we ran a distance and we didn't time. I basically never timed my recovery Mm -hmm. days. Oh, it plays with your mind. Right. Yeah. Right. And the other thing about on the hard days, I think what's changed now, and I don't know if we're getting ahead on this, but now you have the pulse monitors and oh, everything yeah. else that can kind yeah. of help you in your training. And so, for instance, if I were on the track and, and running 400 meters at a certain pace, at a faster than 5K race pace, then on my recovery, I would want my pulse rate to come down mm-hmm. to 120 mm-hmm. and no lower mm-hmm. and take off again. Now, now you have pulse monitors that can help you do that. Right. So the first time I ever wore a pulse monitor, however many years ago, I put it on, went down to the CU track, ran a 400, jogged slowly until I felt I could go again, looked down at the pulse monitor, it said 120. Amazing. I jogged another 400. I mean, I ran another 400. And I always jogged at 200, but I was seeing when my pulse got to to, uh, 120. And with every repeat, it would be a little further along, right? Yeah. But Mm -hmm. each time, Mm -hmm. I could look down at my watch when I thought I was ready to go again. Guess what the watch said? You're that in tune with your body. Right. It it said 120. But but I've said the the point of of all the, the, uh, again, uh, the, the, the tools you have now, they allow more people who aren't as instinctive about it right. to be able to do the same yeah, thing. Totally. And you can achieve the same goal. Right. And so that's why it's broadened. And I like that. It makes the whole sport more inclusive because everybody can do, you know, the same things. And say so you don't have that talent to have this sense of, uh, you know, perceived effort that's as right. fine tuned as someone mm-hmm. else. You can literally compensate for it. So, okay. So back in the day when you were competitive, you were training, you trained with people. Like you yeah. just go out and run. So a bunch of guys. What Those guy, are all the easy days. What do guys talk yeah, about? Yeah, but the other, the, the other point is <laughs> in Florida in particular, we were even more inclusive. We would all meet at the track at about 3, 3.30. And we would start on a three-mile run uh-huh. on, at, on the University of Florida campus. And I kind of brought that to Boulder when I came okay. to Boulder. Was that when you were in law Not school? when I was in law okay. school. And we, we would start out and run a three-mile loop. Wives dogs, everybody, you know, all right. ranges of ability at a very slow warm-up pace. Got it. Oh, that's cool. And so that, and wow. the other thing, when you say, well, did you do all this other stuff, flexibility, stretching, you know, all that kind of stuff? No, we didn't. But what that three-mile run was, if you think about it, is we were stretching. We were warming mm. up. We were, because, ask the exercise physiologist now, the best way to get a muscle ready mm-hmm. to be used in a competition is to gradually build up the motion of that muscle mm-hmm. so that it kind of stretches totally. out. Yeah. So we were, and, and I think in swimming, they're a lot better about that, the, the warming up and the, and oh. the getting going. 
And the other thing in running, now that this is coming into my mind here, I also realized, which subsequently they showed was the way to do it, on stretching, you stretch when you're done. You don't stretch Mm -hmm. before. You stretch for running by starting out slowly. Right. Yep. And the stretching... That's a good point. And the stretching is really much more for injury prevention than it is to help you run better on that particular day. Mm Mm-hmm. I, that's you're so gonna true. you're gonna go better on that day by starting out slowly. Mm-hmm. And and the 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 way I used to always illustrate that is what struck me when I first got to Munich in 1972 and saw the Kenyan and Ethiopian teams, you know, go out of the Olympic Village to run. They were crawling. It's like slower I mean, than you could imagine. They were just, and then they would gradually, 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 mm-hmm. gradually, gradually, and we were doing the same thing, not to the same degree, but again. Yeah. In in all this area, I'm I'm a, a a real believer in parallel evolution. If it develops in Kenya, and they're doing it in Oregon, right. it's probably the right way to do it. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. And nowadays, you can actually connect that people are doing that. Yeah. Back then, you actually had to wait till the Olympics to see them doing it. Yeah. So the '72 Olympics were pretty pretty crazy, pretty dramatic. How do you like maintain your composure through you know? catastrophe that's going on around you well by the way that was the year i was born we were not to age you (laughs) (laughs) yep you're 44 (laughs) you do the math and that's the other thing when we had to run without stopwatches oh uh, that would give splits we had to learn to do our splits in our heads oh my gosh we had to do our math in our heads uh I was sleeping on the balcony of our rooming complex. And again, there were a bunch of Oregon runners and Kenny Moore was one. And then I was rooming with Dave Waddle, but we had snuck Dave Waddle's wife into our rooming complex because they'd just gotten married and he was done his event. So I was sleeping on the balcony of our rooming complex. Before your big race. Yeah. And on a mattress with an, it had an overhang and I heard the shot. I heard the first shot um, that morning and I knew it was the gun and we woke up. And um, the way I describe it, since I was outside, you know, it was just usually I've been out there sleeping about um, a week and you could hear the bustle begin to increase down below. We were on the fourth floor and the Olympic Village, there would be all the noise of people kind of getting out there doing stuff. It was silent. It was the way I describe it is it was like the jungle when there's a predator. Oh, you know, that it, it, it just and you it's it's. It shouldn't be silent. And so there was no one down there. I looked down and I went in the room and everyone was gathered around a little portable uh, television set. And Steve Prefontaine was, was rooming there too. And his mother is German. So he was fluent in German. And he was translating what was going on. And that's when we learned about the Black September group. And so it turns out the shot that I heard was the shot when they were shooting the guy who was the uh, coach who was guarding oh, the, my God. The, the door in the apartment. And the apartment was literally 100 yards across the uh, Olympic Village complex. So we just sat on, we stood on the balcony for a while just watching there. And gradually, you know, what's, what's the coping mechanism for an athlete? Well, we went to run. <laughs> well, so, that's true. Yeah, I and, mean, and, and yeah. we knew something awful had happened. And... Our feeling right at the start was, you know, well, I, the Olympics, are, it's over. You know, we're all going home. 
Uh, because yeah. nothing, nothing was worth human life. And the collective, the collective feeling, and what I always remember about that as well is nobody said, hey, they can't do this. This is, I've worked hard for this. They can't. Take nobody, it away from me. Yeah, here. nobody yeah. did that. No one did. And so we, we just dealt with it that first day. We, we went out and ran. We went to the back gate. They were supposed to lock down the village, but the same guards that were always at this gate now had guns, but we just lined the fence and they're looking at us and we've got, they've got their guns. And like a bunch of skinny guys. Yeah, yeah jumping over the fence. <laughs> and then, you know, you go to the dining hall and eat. And then we realized there would be a, um, a memorial service at the Olympic Stadium the next day. So we all went over there and that was where it was announced rightfully that the games would go on because that's what you do. Uh, that's the spirit of the Olympics. That's the spirit. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, this gets back to answering, you know, well, how do you how do you perform in that context? And I was walking with Kenny Moore out one of the exits. There was a causeway, and the Olympic Village was only about half a mile away. And and uh, Kenny said, you know, I'm going to run the marathon. He was going to run the marathon with me, and he ended up finishing fourth. America, by the way, in mm-hmm. the 1972 Olympic marathon, I was first, Kenny Moore was fourth, and Jack Batchelor, my training partner from Florida, was ninth. Wow. That's the best country finish in the marathon ever. Oh, my God. Uh, in the Olympics. And so we, he said, I'm going to run in their memory. And I said, Kenny, um, I'm not going to think about it. And I said, because if I think about it, they win. And um, as, it, as it turned out, and, and again, uh, what's emerged in more recent years is that I come from a background of um, horrific abuse. My sisters had it much worse, and we won't go into any more detail, but to say that I had six sisters, and they suffered much more than I did in all ways. And I think my learning as a young child and using running as an escape from that and eventually using it even with my education as a way out of that situation involved developing an ability to be able to do what I call turn the switch on and turn the switch off. Mm. And so I made the decision, and I think that applies to training. It applies to so many areas in which you do when you're focusing and not focusing. And you talked about heart. We talked about heart easy before. The mistake a lot of people make is when you're on, yeah, be on, the switch is on. But when you're not, the switch is really off. Mm-hmm. And, and so, in a way, I was doing kind of the same thing. I had learned to, the other word that people use is compartmentalize. Mm-hmm. I'd kind of learned when, it, when it's, and the other aspect of it, in those kind of crisis situations and chaotic situations, I learned from a very young age to, in essence, read the room and read the situation and then realize that over which I had control and what I could do. And so when it came to the Olympic marathon, what I could do was not think about it. And that was it. And, and that's all I could do. And that, that was what I, I had control over. And, and so that's why, even though the only place that anything else could have happened at that Olympics was most likely out on the marathon course. But again, that's true. You know, that's what the mm-hmm. athlete, uh, that's what good athletes do. You train to focus when you're, really focused. And and you just have to allow me in terms because I've done a lot of commentary and I'm just free associating what pops into my head. You know, <laughs> that it, it it also makes you think like 
you know, I'm trying to relate it in a way that isn't answering the, well, what was going through your mind? Well, what were you thinking? Right. Because we know as competitors, you know, in that situation, we're articulating it now. But at that time, you're not really thinking. No, you don't think you, a lot. You, you don't think a lot. <laughs> <laughs> you're but, doing but it. Yeah, you're, but your mind is in a, in a different place. Mm-hmm. And, and I think I'd learned from a very young child when I was running to and from school for stress relief and didn't want to be, that's why I did it. Right. You know, it, it, you, your mind's out there. You can think about what you want to think about, and it's how you deal with the stress and how you deal with things. So in a way, I'd always been trained to be in the Olympics in that circumstance. So you, okay, there's so much good stuff here. I don't want to go into a whole bunch of angles, but I also kind of, I don't actually know why and how and when you started running. Well, I started running when I was about 10 years old to and from school. How far was that? Uh, 2.3 miles. Each way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't do it all the time. And I carried my books in my left hand my left arm, which is why my left arm doesn't swing the same way my right arm does. Wow. Oh, yeah. If you look at pictures of From me. From 10 I carry, years old. Yeah, I carry my... But, but it's stronger. you got a bicep. But there. what it was, <laughs> it happened because, again, I, I just love sports and I was kind of good at it. And I was good at, you know, school, academics. But I wanted to be a downhill ski racer because I lived in an area of upstate New York where there was skiing. And um, I read in the ski magazines at the time in the 60s. The best team in the world were the French. Mm-hmm. I can recite you the name. I can't recite you too many track and field stars from the 60s. There are a few, but I can recite to you the French national team. I love that. <laughs> Ski team. Uh, you know, Jean-Bonzon, Guy Perriot, <laughs> you know, the, the Marion and Christy Goichel, the Goichel sisters, you know, I, and they were my heroes. And I read one of the reasons that they were better than the Austrians, who, that, who, before that were the best was that they ran in the off season for training. Whereas the, the Austrians, oh, the see. Austrians just uh-huh. went home. Austrians went home to the farm and buck bales. Right. Right. And right. Just and, put on and, a few and then, pounds and, and then, and then yeah. skied in the winter. Mm-hmm. Whereas the French were taking a more scientific approach to it mm-hmm. in retrospect. So I said, I want to run cause I wanted to be a, a downhill ski racer. So I just decided to run to and from school and here, is how persuasive I was. When I was about 11, I guess, um, I convinced the principal of my middle school, the, the school, to allow me to wear low cut. And I, I found a pair of sneakers that had a very flexible sole. And at that time, there was a dress code, only black tie shoes for boys. And I oh. convinced him to allow me to wear my racing, my running shoes to school. In gym class, I convinced the gym teacher to allow me to run laps around the field during gym class rather than have gym. Oh, no idea. How no, do you convince I, I people don't know. of these things? I don't what know. are your powers at no, 11 years old? But what I think was, and I, I think I, I was kind of persuasive, but I think there was also this attitude, oh, I'll let him do it. He'll get over it. You know, you know, oh I, my I think, gosh, you have to thank them. You got to thank that principal. So, <laughs> so, so it, it became the same way, but to extend on, I kept skiing. Even when I went away to prep school at Mount Hermon School in Massachusetts, I was on both the ski and cross-country and track teams. And I was actually my senior year captain of both teams. And um, I decided in my senior year, and this was, skiing was four-way, as we called it, running, I mean, cross-country, jumping, and slalom, and, and downhill. Okay. So we, it was called four-way. Mm-hmm. And... Um, 
I went to the ski coach December of my senior year and I said, look, I, I just want to run now. And it was one of those great moments in life where, you know, it's really my first memory of, of talking to an adult about my goals in sport and having this adult understand. So Senior here I was cap- in high school and I was captain of the ski team. And I said, and I was captain of the cross country team. And I said, I want to quit the ski team and just focus on running. And he was fine. So he, he, he was listened absolute- and he supported and he right. saw the talent. Right. I don't know if he saw the talent, but you know, he, right. So but again, I just thought about that when you said, well, how could I convince the high school principal? That's so cool. <laughs> you know? Yeah, but it takes like a, there's a lot of soul searching that goes with making decisions like that at oh, a younger yeah. age. And you, you know, alluded to maybe you didn't have a family support or parental support to help you make those decisions for you. Here's an example of my parental support. My father saw me race once. In, in I was in prep school, and it was the New England Cross Country Championships at Andover, prep school cross country, and he happened to be in town. My father never watched any race when I was in college, never watched wow. any race, even in the Olympics. Wow. Ever. Wow. So that's how much support I got. So you've had to uh, learn to support yourself. But maybe it's one of the reasons I'm self-coached. That's true. <laughs> yeah, that could be. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, huge part of it. Yep. Um, well, with uh, okay, so I actually am curious too. So, what makes you different than any other kid who seems like maybe has some talent? Why did you go on to become the best in the world? Because I used the running as stress relief through college. I was pre med mm-hmm. at Yale. You know, was going to go to med school, and then I'm one of those people who does things not only on time but early. And you know your senior paper. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah. ADL, you have to write a senior paper yes, in your major. I remember. Remember. Mm-hmm. What was yours? Uh, it was on childhood learning, early childhood development. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Mine was called The Female Athlete, an Oxymoron. And it was about <laughs> women and body image issues in sports. Wow. Can you believe What was that? your major? Sociology. Oh, great. <laughs> so we're both doing nothing with our majors. Pre-med. Um, yeah, and yeah, <laughs> yeah. Really, yeah, mine was uh, pre-dreaming, pre-verbal dreaming in infants. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, that's a whole nother podcast. Yeah, yeah. We can talk about that later. Yeah, anyway. But Mm. uh, I had my senior paper done by spring break my senior year. Oh, wow. That's early. And so I spent the rest of the semester training more Mm -hmm. because I was basically finished. Went to the NCAAs and won the six mile and was second in the three mile the next day. So all of a sudden I had this indication. Boom. So then the priority shifted from yep. the sport being the stress relief from the education, which I learned from an early age mm-hmm. before I even got there, uh, to the running became primary. But then what I'd learned also became what I used to be able to stay out there and train because at the time you, there weren't amateur, uh, we were all amateurs and you couldn't mm-hmm. earn money. Yep. So it was to try to figure out a way to just live so you could uh, train and go to the Olympics. But the priority yeah. shifted. And it was, it, it, it was very simple that I saw this very quick improvement in a two or three month period. And I just wanted to find out how good I was going to get and where I was going to uh-huh. level off. And it didn't have anything to do with winning. 
because we all know you lose more than you win anyway mm -hmm. uh, on the way up and even at the top. And if you're winning all the time, it just means you're not operating at high enough level. <laughs> you're, true. You, you need to find a bigger pond. And and so, it, and, I, and I understood that because of the way I'd come into it. Because I wasn't um, a phenom. I was, I was more of just a... Evolved. I evolved, and I was always good where I was. Yeah. But it wasn't like I was a, a, a standout until, uh, again, I graduated from college, and then it just took off. Long story short, it took three years, and I just focused on the running and being consistent and working on refining my training. And, uh, and your mental it. toughness kicked in, and you kind of had the trifecta. Yeah, I. But what I loved about running, and I know it's very similar in swimming, is that the it's a myriad of of backgrounds that the really good athlete from where they come from, and you know Steve Prefontaine are good examples. I mean, I you know I was Eastern educated yep. on the on the fast track ladder. Oh, yep. He was West Coast Lumbertown mm -hmm. in Oregon, but what we shared was the running. Yeah. This love of this motion and what it did for us. Mm -hmm. And that is, in a way, all you really needed in common. <laughs> and then everything else can mesh and blend together mm -hmm. kind of from there. And and that's what the, the beauty of the sport is. And, and I guess why I'm going through this sort of kind of mystical explanation is you, you find the people, and I encourage everyone listening, in your training to find people who, who kind of share this attitude towards what you're doing and the goal, the way they want to set their goals when I talked about just to see how good they can get. Yeah. And, and that may not be your goal. You may just want to be able to finish a half marathon, but you find people with those similar goals and you don't have to have that much else in common. It's true. <laughs> and, and, and so that, that's, that's the fun, that, that's the fun part of it. So when you say, you know, how did I know and, and what motivated me, I just wanted to find out where I was going to level off and it leveled off on the victory podium in the Olympic games. Which is the ultimate. And then the next Olympics, you were not first, no. but in retrospect, possibly, I, I want to actually hear your side of the story here. Cause you won the silver medal in the 76 Olympics. Right. And the guy that won the gold, I actually don't even know his name. Um, didn't he go on to test positive for drugs no, later? He, no, he didn't test positive later. Okay. What happened was when the, when the wall went down, 1989, East Germany, the Stasi, which was the secret police in East Germany, uh, it turns out this secret police was actually in charge of their drug program. Oh. It was mandated by the president of the country named Honecker. Kind of sounds like Russia, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. And today. It does, yes. And it was mandated and um, it was overseen by the secret police. And not only that, they were very sophisticated about their record keeping and their research. They were actually doing research to cheat better. There are unpublished PhDs um, in cheating. athletes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and there was a doctor, a, a cancer specialist in West Germany, whose wife was an East German discus thrower, and they, she defected. And she wouldn't go on the drug program. And basically, you had to be on the drug program. Kind of sounds like Russia, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, and, and Parallels. <laughs> as the French say, plus ça change. More it changes, the more it's the same. And so this doctor, it turns out, 
was instrumental in uncovering a whole bunch of Stasi records that weren't destroyed. Oh, I see. Okay. And in these records, there's one particular piece of evidence that's actually in the book that I've written, the memoir I've written, Frank Shorter, um, my marathon. And, and I inserted it in the, in the book. It's in the book. It's a letter between two Stasi generals who were overseeing the drug program. And in, it's a memo to the file. And in this memo, they're discussing Bruce Fuchs, who was the world record holder in the Javel at the time, and discussing the steroid that she was on. And where uh, the other athletes that were on the program, how are they going to procure this drug for everyone? The letter was dated February of 1976. Mm-hmm. The Olympics were in July. Mm-hmm. Attached to it, attached to it, and you have to understand when they uncover these records, the West Germans, when they uncovered all these Stasi records, you have teams that go in and find documents and read them together, authenticate them in teams and have stamps, sequential stamps and things on them so that they, they can show that nothing's been tampered with. Right, okay. To authenticate it. And so this document has all this authentication and at the end of the document is a handwritten list of athletes who are on the program. And it's a handwritten list with their code number, perhaps because they were part of the Right. Experiment program. Everyone's just a coach. And so the <laughs> fellow who finished ahead of me in, in Montreal is on that. And we've also found out, and he's admitted publicly since then, that he was also, at the same time, a Stasi informer. He was informing on his teammates. Oh, my gosh. So this the, is a movie. So the, so the argument that he didn't know what he was doing or was coerced into doing what he was yeah. doing is kind of hard to make. Wow. So that's it. Um, it's crazy. Uh, I did, did just mention a movie. We need to do a movie on your life. <laughs> By the way, Frank mentioned his book. And if anybody's listening, I see that it's now available. It will be available after um, July 3rd because oh, okay. it's at the Olympic trials, going out to the Olympic trials. And um, because I also won the 10,000 meter tr- trial twice. So we're doing something. They're doing something. They want me there. You for getting the, a big award? I don't know. I'm going to be at the. I'm going to be at the 10,000 meter final trial. Cause, okay. Because I won it. it. I won it twice. And there's going to be a signing at the University of Oregon bookstore the next day, and that's sort of the official launch of the book. That's so cool. So you guys, Frank is super humble because he's probably getting a massive award at trials. And I remember running into you, oh, I don't know, six months ago or so, a year ago, and we were talking about Yale. And I said, oh, I rarely ever go back, but I'm doing a reunion. And and you said, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go back for the second time or something. It was like you're, you rarely go as well. And I said, oh, what are you doing? Oh, I'm just, they're just giving me a little award. And I said, oh, well, what what's the what's the award? And I think you said something like, um, well, best athlete ever. It was like <laughs> something along those lines. So this Track is Track and field, not he swimmer. Just... <laughs> you gotta remember Yale had incredible swim teams when oh, I was there. Oh, we did, we did. And you know, and like the heart rate thing takes me back. You know, I remember touching the wall and putting my my fingers on my carotid artery and like looking at the clock and counting to ten and and our heart rates would get up to like 200. Oh, yeah. It was like we were flying up there, you know. Third. And you, you never knew it because <sighs> I never, I don't tell people this, but you want, you can understand the story. In the winter, I would sometimes not want to go out to the indoor oh. track. I would run the laps around the, the exhibition pool. pool. I would run that laps around. That is the worst. Oh, my it God. Was like, and that's where the wrestlers would wear, <laughs> would wear their 
wear their rubber suits to lose weight. Oh, it was and, horrible. And, and run up around. It was like a steam. And, but I, I love watching the practices. Oh, yeah, that was fun. That was, because, that was God, cool. That, that you were there when my dad was at Yale. Actually, he won the award for the number one um, intramural guy. They gave, like, the best intramural oh, yeah. athlete. Oh, yeah. Anyway, um, so I have a few more questions. Can we okay. keep rolling for a few minutes? Okay. Okay. We, I won't keep you too long. So we've talked about this a little bit, but um, when did you know that you were slowing down? Like, for instance, a lot of people yep. just keep thinking, I'll just keep getting faster and faster my whole life, and that's just not possible. I, so and when this, did it, I think this is a good one to, to end it on yeah. because it, it – Shows and it relates to how I, you know, get into the cycling. And, yeah, totally. And now we're here at Rally and I work out twice a day and I'm, I'm here all the time. And and now we do all the, you know, core strength training that, oh, totally. that all the athletes do. But I was in a race in my hometown. I was 35 years old, Middletown, New York. It was 1982. And the first two years of this race, my hometown invites back first year Bill Rogers. So I managed to beat Bill. And that year, he was ranked number one in road racing in the world. The next year, they call up to say, you want to come back? And I say, is Bill coming? And they said, no, 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 no. So I go back. They invited Rod Dixon from New Zealand, <laughs> who that year was the number one ranked road racer in the world. And I think they do he did. went on that year to win, <laughs> to win the Boston Marathon. An Olympic bronze medalist in the 1500 meters who 10 years later runs under 209 for the marathon and wins New York. But anyway, he's in the race. Fortunately, it was in the summer. And at about five miles, I started to get a lead on him. And I thought to myself, this is harder than it should be. And I realized at that moment that I was, I was going down. And I swear that at that moment, I said to myself, okay, because I was my own coach. I started to think about, and we talk about reframe. We didn't go into reframing, but this mm -hmm. idea of when you're disappointed or something doesn't go right, you back up. And when I do it, you, you reframe, mm -hmm. you evaluate. Again, over which you have control, which you don't have control, what can you do? So I'm thinking, and I said, okay, so now my goal is going to be to slow down as slowly as possible. I decided that I was 35 years old, and because I knew. Yep. I, I knew, and you knew when that moment happened. Mm -hmm. And you may have been in denial, but in, in retrospect, you know. I, I, but I... But I knew, and so that's what, you know, the transition turned 40, started cycling. And I have to give a plug for myself, and I've told you this, because one of the I things do. I'm proudest of is that I, when I was 41 years old, I was doing so much cycling, and I said, hell, I might as well compete. So I started to do duathlons, not triathlons, but right. duathlons. Yep. Because, um, and long story short, for two years in a row, I was the World Masters duathlon champion. It's so amazing. I, and I can't... It, I don't even know. It's just like <laughs> but, you could but do the point anything. Is, but the point is, I, I realized there was a way to keep training. And, and when your listeners are saying, well, why would you want to do that? Why, why would you want to do it that way? I think really the, the best way to, to end it is all of anyone who's listening, you say, well, how much, how much should I do? And my feeling is, as long as you exercise for a half an hour, three times a week, that's the minimum. Anything more than that, in a way, is you have for yourself what I term an energy quotient. My energy quotient is I need to work out and do enough athletically in a day to be satisfied. Mm -hmm. And the way I illustrate it is you go out for a run and you run four miles and you go, I think I'll go further. Why? Well, for your health, you don't need to go further. 
That's true. Do you? Do you? And, and and okay, yeah. And if you and if you mm -hmm. want to compete, you're going further. But we all have this quotient. So I had this energy quotient at 35 that I knew I was going to have to keep filling. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and as I went on, I realized I could fill it different ways. Yeah. And so I gradually got over into the alternate exercise. I do my really hard heartbeat training on on, on, on elliptical now. Oh, really? And, yeah. And I just. I, I save my running for just enjoyment. Because you don't run as much. We talked about you've had quite a few surgeries sure. now, and we've all got body issues and whatever. Yeah. So you've just found different ways to be creative and, and fill and that. And satisfy the urge. Mm -hmm. And yeah. my urge is to really raise my heart rate, do these intervals as we call them, but I do mm -hmm. them on an elliptical now. Yep. And that nice, easy recovery out there, having fun, thinking about whatever I want to, is now the yeah. running. Yep. And, and I even swim. But I swim for stretching. Yeah. You know, and, mm -hmm. and so I've found my balance. And so that's what I'm encouraging anyone who's listening there. And your balance doesn't have to be at the same level as my balance. Yep. So do you still feel challenged today then? And in your life? Like what are your priorities right you know, now? Well the priorities now is to just feel better when I'm running. So now I'm using that to try to get a lot to be a lot more flexible. So I've even started some yoga. Yeah. Oh and, wow. Yeah, and for the flexibility yeah. because I found it really helps and yep. it really works. Because my theory is, as you age, your performance goes down. You have to find a way to have an exercise routine that involves the aerobic component, the strength component, mm -hmm. the core component, and the mental component uh, that keeps you active on a consistent basis. Because if you fall out of that routine as you get older, and the strength part is huge as you get older, in particular... If you start to lose your strength, then you start getting to the point where if you perhaps do get injured, the injury is more severe, mm -hmm. it's more difficult to come back from, from and you'll get into a downward spiral yep. you, you, because you don't have the strength to recover because you didn't do the work to be mm -hmm. at a certain level when something went wrong. Yep. And so I think that's what's so important. And the other thing is, in terms of goal setting for older athletes, I found I can get stronger, and it's the one area in which I can improve. Yes. Flexibility and strength. Still improve. I can get stronger upper body. Legs, probably not. But upper body, I can get stronger. And flexibility, I can, get more, I can be more flexible. So yeah. those are my two achievement yeah. goals. Reframe. Reframe. Mm -hmm. Those are the other goals. So I actually leave every, every episode. I ask, I ask all of my amazing visionaries to give our listeners one thing that they could do to run their worlds in a bigger and better way. So if you had like one overall message or vision that you want to impart on people, what would that be? That, you know, the training in, in the sport, I think for both of us, kind of reflects our, our lives and our attitude towards life. And as I've set goals and, and tried to achieve them, and then I've, I've learned that the fear of anticipation, when I talked about finding out how good I could get, along with that goes this constant, what if? You know, what might happen? What, 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 what could happen? How bad could it be? And I think that the worst case scenario is something we all battle and it's something that if you can at least recognize it and know how it is, you can not focus on it as much. And my reward very often, and I'm not a Pollyanna. I am not a Pollyanna. I, I think I'm pretty realistic. But I believe most of the time, 
in a circumstance that you anticipate is going to be very difficult or even horrific or a failure or something, you find that when it finally happens, number one, it's not what you thought it was going to be, and it's never as bad as you anticipated it was going to be. And again, is that an optimism? Is that, I, who knows what it is? But, uh, but I'm, I'm, not a, a, I, I'm not a rosy cheek guy. I mean, I don't, I, I know you have to work and, and work hard, mm-hmm. but my, my experience is it really is never as bad as I anticipate. Yeah, but every time I still do it. <laughs> we all but, stand at the starting line, going, "Why did we do this to ourselves?" And all we want is for the gun to go off. I totally, because then and you can lose it. Want. That's all you want. <laughs> well, Frank, thank you so much. Sure. I want to keep going, and I'll chat with you anytime. You'll okay. you'll bless me with your presence. Well, thanks. Thanks so much. Well, that was a very special episode. Hopefully, for all of you, definitely for me. I love hearing Frank's stories and I could listen to him forever. So I promise to have him on again at some point. In the meantime, I encourage you to get out there if you want to learn more about Frank and check out his new book, My Marathon. Uh, I'll have a link to it in the show notes. So go to NicoleDeBoom.com backslash podcast and you will find Frank's episode. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. This was episode 15. We are making progress. Um, If you have a second, go onto iTunes and give this podcast a review. I need reviews to keep this thing going forward and to have us show up in the rankings so that other people can hear these great stories. Well, on that note, folks, it is time to get out there and run this world. Have a great workout and we will see you next week.